Hello and welcome to the Kildren Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Lou Coddy. And today on the episode, we're talking about pest control in Afghanistan. That's right, you heard me correctly. And to help me out on the podcast today, we have got Neil Wotherspoon from Elite Pest Management. Neil, how are you? I'm fine, thanks very much. Thank you for bringing such a fascinating topic to the podcast. Let's get straight into it then. Uh, when was this and how long were we out there for? Back in 2011 um, is when I first went out there. But kind of leading, leading up to that, I've been in the pest control industry in the UK for about, about 20 years. I was kind of at that stage, I just fancied doing something, something different. Um, and I knew KBR, Kellogg Brennan Root, they're a huge, huge company. Uh, but they've got a head office down in Leatherhead, uh, down in Surrey. And I knew they were looking for somebody abroad because somebody else I knew had worked out there and, and kind of tipped me off, shall we say. Um, so I spoke to them and uh, went down for an interview uh, down at Leatherhead. And obviously we all my experience, they, they, they jumped at it. And, and then on my birthday, 23rd of August, 2011, I landed in Kandahar Air Base. And spent a couple of years, couple of years out there, um, and then, and then obviously just decided to move on after that. I got another job out in Azerbaijan, of all places, with um, with BP. But the Kandahar thing, yeah, not everybody would not be everybody's cup of tea. But I, I'd spent seven years in the forces, so I, I suppose that that helped me um, made, make make my decision to go out there. So that's basically what spurred you on to it then. You had experience in the military. How much experience did you have? Straight from school, I went into junior leaders regiment down in Nuneaton. So I spent a year there and then I spent six years over in Germany with, um, with the regiment out there. I was in the Royal Artillery. So um, that, that kind of, I suppose, helped me, you know, when, when people think, why, why would you go out there? Obviously, there's a risk going on, the conflict. The conflict was going on in Afghanistan. Um, but... Yeah, I suppose that military background kind of just, just helped me make that decision to go out there. I mean, what you have to remember as well, Kandahar itself was it's a huge, huge base. So everything that happened in the south of Afghanistan got controlled from Kandahar Air Base. There was, at the height of the trouble, there was 35,000 people there. So you think about it, it's just like a small town. So you've got people like ourselves, the pest controllers there, but you have everybody else needed to help run a small town. So you've got the pest controllers, you've got the roads and grounds people, you've got the airfield people carrying out the friction control, the lighting, the cargo handlers. Then you've got the cleaning of the camp. You've got the catering of the camp. Seven huge dining facilities out there um, just, to, just to feed all these people. Um, and it was absolutely immense. So, yeah, anything you need to, to run a small town, it was there. So not just, you know, um, uh, expats like myself out there working, there was tons of other people in all sorts of all sorts of um, trades. So yeah, not just not just pesties. Um, that's fascinating. And the idea of the scale, I had no idea it was going to be so large. I think the first thing people come to thinking about this topic is the working conditions. Like not only the fact that you're in a military base, and so there's maybe a threat of terror at all times, but also the extreme heat. How, how was it working? In these conditions, yeah, I mean the heat. The heat was one thing, obviously. I mean, at the height, at the height is roughly, I suppose, the hottest it's got around about the forty degrees temperature. So really, really, but it's a dry heat. So you, you didn't realize how hot, how hot it was at times. 
Um, but you, you were drinking something like eight bottles of water a day just to, just to keep yourself hydrated. Um, and then sometimes between January and March, roughly, um, there were some floods as well. So you had, you had that coming in. So it wasn't just all dry all the time. There was a flood season as well. Um, but working conditions, yeah, the, the heat, the weather obviously had a control on certain things, obviously the, the, the insect pests that we got as well. But I mean, we, the working conditions, we worked six and a half days a week. Uh, for myself, I did six and a half days a week for three months, and then you got three weeks uh, leave. So then, uh, but the, the foreign national guys that were out there, we had a team, there was a team of six plus myself. Um, they, they did 47 weeks on and five weeks off. I'm not sure I could have done that, but um, that was that was theirs. That's what they signed up to. They knew what they were doing. But yeah, that's a long, that's a long, long time. But yeah, I was quite lucky, shall we say. But yeah, six and a half days a week. Yeah, no alcohol, no alcohol. So it was just water only or some juice. But um, work, so if you're working six and a half days a week, then what are you doing with that 0.5 day of downtime? Like, what can you even do with that? Is it just resetting ready for the next six and a half day yeah, on? More or less, that you're, you're half a day, you just kind of chilled out or, or, or went on a walk around. You, you can't sort of like walk around the camps willy-nilly, you know, it's not that type of place. And, and like I say, it was huge, but there was a, uh, there was a boardwalk. So um, uh, because obviously that, the, the camp's been there, was there for years before me, and years after me, obviously they had to have some sort of um, uh, recuperation areas. So um, on the boardwalk, there was uh, various cafes. Um, there was like a false KFC. There was coffee shops. Um, but in that as well, they were in that huge boardwalk area, there was um, five-a-side pitch, uh, astroturf. It was just an area where we could we we could just go and chill out for a, for a little bit. Um, but yeah, burger places, Pizza Hut, Subway, you know, so it was all right. It, it was just somewhere, somewhere just to walk to and, and chill out or even drive to, because like I said, the camp was that big. Sometimes you couldn't just walk to it. You'd have to get a, you'd have to get a vehicle out there and just go and chill out and have a coffee and have a look at the old Scotties having a game at Fireside or basketball or whatever else they were into. That was just it. And you you could sit in your room and watch any films because... Uh, the, the amount of films that were out there, you were able to get your hands on. Um, you could watch anything. So, yeah, maybe a film sometimes. Maybe go to the boardwalk, have a cap, a coffee, and then the evenings. I suppose the evenings was all a bit of phys physical exercise. A bit, you know, where we all kept ourselves reasonably fit. It wasn't like you say, wasn't much else to do. Not much else to do. And the good thing about it was you could save a fortune as well because everything was paid for. Apart from when you went to the boardwalk and bought a coffee, that I think I spent something like fifty quid a month. And then the rest was all saving. So it was, it was, it was not bad. It was good to me that way. That was my first thought when you said no beer, only water, and six and a half days. Oh. You must be the fittest you've ever been. Oh, oh, I listen. I'm not. I was not the size I am today. Put it that way. <laughs> um, let's get on to your typical day then. How big was the team in general, and what would a typical day entail? The team was there were six, six of us plus plus myself. Um, and we kind of just split into uh, the three teams of two, and I joined whichever one uh, I decided on on the day. Um, but we, we'd get up roughly, you know, half five, six o'clock. Uh, we'd be out checking all the um, checking all the animal traps because we we did suffer a lot from animals getting on camp through various ways because of obviously the the nature of the airfield, etc. What you couldn't have was animals running across the uh, run across the uh, runways, especially when there was 
certain planes or or helicopters or whatever trying to trying to take off. So one of the tasks, yeah, was to keep control of the, the animals. And while you think, how could animals get into a highly uh, uh, secure establishment? There's just just lots of lots of ways they managed to find find their way in. But so yeah, we had roughly anything between sixty and eighty live traps set um, at any any one any one time. And so the first order of the day was go see if we caught any uh, any of them in the morning. Um, we did have a few uh, snares out and things like that, um, but the snares were collar and collar and traps, so they're free running, so they didn't choke the animal, that sort of thing. So we'd get them, uh, we'd get the animals, um, and uh, obviously the local legislation as well. We, we didn't kill anything; we just put them, let them go. Um, there was obviously still the threat of rabies and that there, so we made sure the guys had all the correct PPE, the gauntlets, and two-man teams lifting and all that kind of stuff. And then we'd let them go outside of the let them go outside of the fence line. Um, so yeah, that was generally the very first thing to, thing of the day: check the animal traps, release what we uh, what we could, and then just went and got some breakfast. And then uh, that was the that was the start of the morning. You mentioned animals that you touched on it. So how much does the range of animals differ from out there to here, and what were specific animals? I, I didn't have much experience going out to there in animal control. Shall we say yes? Wild dogs and cats. We still got wild dogs and cats out there, but we also had jungle cats. So a bit like a bit like a Scottish lynx in a way, the way they the way the, the way, way they looked. Um, and if anybody wants to anybody wants to look at any of the pictures that I caught on my Facebook page, there's I've got a photo album called Afghan Critters, and you can see a lot of the animals that we that we caught out there. So you had your you, you had your dogs and cats, you had your jungle jungle cats, you had golden jackals, you had foxes. Uh, we even caught porcupines. So I, I, I know, and I didn't know this. I didn't, I didn't know at all myself. So one was in the trap, and I just, you know, when, you know, when you look at something, and you take a, a second look, as if to say, is that, is that really what's in there? And and it, it was, yeah, porcupines. Yeah, we even caught the odd mongoose in the traps as well. But obviously, we let the mongoose go because he'd, he'd get the snakes. Um, but all, all of them got released. But yeah. Porcupine of all things, couldn't believe it when I seen it, but yeah, yeah. But they were, have to tell you, oh, they stunk, they were smelly things. But yeah, yeah, porcupines of all, of all things. Porcupines are smelly, they sold us, sold us quite a cute animal, aren't they? Well, they might, they might look cute, they might look cute, they don't smell cute, that's for sure. Trust me. <laughs> um, so you said snakes, was that the most dangerous animal then, I guess, you encounter, really? Yeah. Well, yeah, um, physically, yeah. Um, the, the main one, yes, you had your, your sand racers and things like that. Um, but the, the, the most deadly one out there was the saw scale viper. Um, so if you didn't get to the Roll 3 hospital, Roll 3 just the name of the, the hospital on camp, you didn't get there in time, you, you could die. Um, they are deadly. Um, so there is that, there always is that, is that threat of them. Um, but uh, the anti-venom was kept at the Royal Three Hospital, so you just you had to you had to be aware of that and make sure you got there as soon as you can. I, I don't know of any cases of any actually getting bitten when I was there, um, but it's also it's also got to make um, got to be prepared for these sort of things. So yeah, they, they definitely had the anti-venom there, and people were made aware of it. All the new all the new uh, forces personnel or staff coming in, there was always a briefing from. Uh, whoever their commanders were, etc. But pest control was part of that. There was a PowerPoint on on pest control and all the uh, and all the associated diseases and risks. So 
um, yeah, people see these little dogs and think they're nice and cuddly, but there's always a threat to rabies as well. So um, try not to try not to encourage them to keep pets. You talked about the animals then. Let's talk about the control methods. So the traps and equipment, what did you use for that? And also, is it true that you got some of that stuff from Killgerm? That must have made your life very easy if it was obviously Killgerm stock. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, we did. Yes, we did get a lot of our equipment from Killgerm. Uh, your overseas department there dealt with that um, and shipped that out to us in the pallet load. But yes, we got a lot of obviously live cat. Most of the, most of the captures for animals were live captures in the big cages. Um, a couple of collar and traps um, that we used from time to time, uh, but we also had um, tranquilizer guns as well. Um, if there was a live one, obviously, again, running near the airfield, um, which is high risk, I don't think they trust us with a, they trust us with a real rifle, um, but we had a tranquilizer gun. We, had, we did a, a course uh, run by the US Veterinary Service out there, um, and it was just a mixture of ketamine, so it was just like a tranquilizer. Um, and we'd use that to, to take the animal out and then obviously just escort it and take it back to the vets and they would, they would look after it. Uh, I guess a big obstacle, if you will, if that's the right choice of word, is you have to obviously work around the army. Like they were also having their day-to-day routine and day-to-day jobs. How did you find that? Um, it, it, wasn't as bad as, it wasn't as bad as you thought um, because we've all got our own tasks to do. Everybody's got their own job to do. They just went about, they just went about theirs. Yes, there was a lot of traffic uh, in this in this camp, um, but yeah, generally, and, and, and for us, uh, us pesties, they were quite welcoming of us. So obviously, uh, apart from our the routine stuff, the, uh, checking the traps and then checking the bait boxes in certain areas, obviously we did our reactive call out. So if we were doing a call out, um, sometimes you got you know big hairy ass squatty standing on the bed because there's a camel spider underneath the bed. You know, and so we're going and get rid of it or if it's snakes, that sort of thing. They were quite welcoming to us because we knew we were going to relieve them of a problem that they had. So it, it was actually quite it was actually quite good. We, we provided a good service to them and, and I, I think they appreciated it. I guess you touched on a couple of these already, but what were the risks and challenges then? And also, was it such things like sirens? If a siren went off, would you have to do any like procedures yeah. and la- make sure you were lined up somewhere? Did that happen often? So uh, you mentioned you mentioned the risks. So So that was the risk. That was a that was a warning siren of a rocket attack going off. We had there was periods of time where you had nothing at all, and then sometimes there was an escalation of of, of the threat. Uh, some were false calls for whatever reason. The sensors are obviously triggered and activated the alarms, but um, that that was a risk for 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 the guys that were permanently there, like ourselves, who were there longer than some of the uh, some of the forces personnel. Um, we were in we were in purpose built accommodation. So uh, when that siren went off, it was in if it was in at night when it went off, we'd have to go in our into our corridor in our uh, accommodation because they they were made of blast walls, so we were safe there. People intended accommodation would have to go to run to a bunker and then there'd be a roll call, that sort of thing. And then when you got the, um, when you, if you got the, all, when, once you got the all clear, yes, you, you could go back. But, you know, you'd, at two o'clock in the morning when this goes off, you sat there for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes till whatever's happened is, is dealt with and sorted. Then you get the all clear, you're just getting your head back again and the siren goes off again. So uh, some nights, yeah, you didn't get much, you didn't get much sleep. Um, but 
because again, the, the, the camp is so big. If something did something did happen on one side of the camp, you might not even hear it. You might not even know it's gone off. But uh, that was that was always the risk there. And there was times when it uh, rocket did fall into the camp, and um, certain buildings got damaged, certain planes got damaged, that sort of thing. Um, so that was always the risk. It's always there. Uh, and when the uh, when the threat got um, when threat level got raised, then you'd have to keep all your PPE with you. So you've got your body armor and your, your helmet, et cetera. So those were the risks and that's the, that's the precautions you took. So was that the standard PPE then? Were you, were you always wearing a helmet and body armor? No, you just, depending on the threat level, um, there's various threat levels, you know, um, and, and uh, if there was, uh, shall we say, an, an imminent attack, um, uh, level raised, then you would keep your PPE with you at all times. Um, you, you'd, have, you'd have your jacket on and your helmet. If it was a, a lower level, you'd just have to have it within five metres of you. Because obviously when you're working, it's 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 a bit of a bind working with a, a helmet on and your body armour on. And then if it was a low risk, you just had to make sure it was it was near it was nearby. So yeah, the threat level dictated the amount uh, where your PPE was. I think something that can resonate with pest controls back here in the UK is you often have to educate your customers sometimes. With you guys working in such close proximity to the members of the army, were you having to educate them on stuff? I guess it's to different degrees, like snake bites or what to do if like a jackal comes into the tent or anything like that. Yeah, well, uh, like I said earlier on, most uh, most new people coming onto camp, um, there was a PowerPoint on um pest control and uh, the, the, the risks associated with everything there. So they were kind of already kind of briefed on it. Um, and each camp all had a, 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 an emergency contact number, just like a call out number, shall we say, and, and, and out of hours number. So if there was any, if there was any uh, risks or any, uh, if they were worried about something, they could, they could give us a ring. And we had to respond 24 hours, 24 hours a day. The weird one of the weirdest ones was like at three o'clock in the morning where we got a call out. It happened to be uh, there was an RAF detachment there, we took tornado detachment there, and at three o'clock in the morning uh, we got a call out from them. So when we arrived there, as you can imagine, uh, the pilots have to climb up some step ladders to get into the cockpit. Uh, well, at the bottom of the steps was a nice little soul scale viper, so they were not going anywhere near the steps because that snake was more or less asleep there. Um, so yeah, we went and dealt with that. So this little snake stopped this guy going on his mission at three o'clock in the morning. So um, yeah, that was a that was a kind of a, a weird one. But yeah, that's the kind of thing we sometimes got. You know, that was a slightly slightly extreme, but yeah, we had the ones where, you know, people are calling us out uh, because of the, they're seeing a snake, they're not sure what type it is. So we'd have to go and deal with it because you've got sentry, You've got sentry, sentry, sentry points all over the place, and sometimes where they've got these uh, um, uh, sandbag walls, etc., the snakes would be hiding, hiding in the shade in them, and then pop, popping out at night to see, uh, to obviously hunt for some food or whatever. Um, so yeah, the sentry would uh, be a little bit worried and call us out as well, just to just get it and get rid of it. What are the uh, pest control measures then for dealing with a snake? Well, believe it or not, it's just a case of uh, obviously we've got some protective gear that we that we have a bit like shin guards to a degree. Obviously, we've always got our boots on, um, but it's a bit like a litter picker, a long extension litter picker. But it's got a flat, it's got a flat uh, bottom and a hook on the top. So basically, you would scoop underneath the snake, close the close the handle, and you just take a grip of it. Then you'd put, we'd have a large bucket and basically just put it in the large bucket. 
and then just take it to the fence line and let it go. Simple as that. Once you've got hold of it, you've got hold of it. It's not as it's not as bad as you think, uh, but you obviously try to get it as close to the head as you as you could. It is fascinating, isn't it, to talk about pest control and just that how much uh, that varies between countries. Like a pest over here can be a, a grey squirrel, and over there it can be like a deadly snake. Yeah, I, I mean, some of the other th- bits that we uh, had to deal with, obviously, we've we, we just mentioned the different types of animals. Yeah, uh, far different than what I expected. Some very unusual things, like the porcupine, I didn't, re- I didn't realise. But obviously, we've got the mosquito control as well, which was a big, a big part of it. Now, I hadn't really, even though I'd had about 20 years experience, I didn't really do much mosquito control back here in the UK. So that was a, that was a great learning curve for me um, out there. Um, I mean, mosquito control, we were out between March and uh, October, some early hours of the morning going out with, uh, we had like a big London fogger attached on the back of our Jeep. And um, we'd go around at two or three o'clock in the morning, fogging certain areas of the camp. That was a big part of our work as well, mosquito control. Um, obviously, the certain types carry the malaria, etc. So there's always a, there's always a threat to that. So that was a that was another big part. You know, we said our daily routine, but uh, we did a, a lot of out of our stuff. We call out and doing the mosquito control. But the guys, we did just set a team out of two uh, doing that at night, and so they started late the next day because they were they were up early in the morning. But yeah, learning learning all about the mosquitoes. You know, which one carries the malaria all about uh, dipping the water to find out if there's any larvae in it to start with. Then there's um, various control methods you can put um, over water courses to stop the larvae coming to the surface and, and, and breathing to kill them off that way. Just spotting natural predators like dragonflies scooping along the water. So you knew there was larvae about because you see the natural predators like dragonflies scooping on the water, feeding off them. So there's, yeah, there was some good, it was a good education for me. Um, you know, breeding up on, on mosquito control and the different types of they are and watching the, watching the larvae tumble to the water and all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was good. I really enjoyed the learning part of it, all these, all these different experiences. Somebody like myself who had 20 years experience over here at the time to learn all these new, new, new techniques and, and, and methods. And even things like, like uh, fly control, Yes, we've got fly killers, et cetera, et cetera. We know how to use the fogging machines for mosquitoes, so the same will work on the flies. But using fly bait, I'd never used fly bait back in the UK. So um, there was a Max Force fly bait, and um, yeah, it was brilliant because obviously you got all these porter cabin type toilets all over the place, but a lot of flies around them as well, as you can imagine. So we used some uh, some fly bait in some uh, hoppers to, 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 to use, and, and they were absolutely fantastic for fly control. Never used them, like I said, never used them here. But it was a good tool for us over there. I know it can be difficult to try and concentrate down a few years of work into a few pithy points and so on. But is there any key things that you've taken back, like experience that you gained over there and you've been able to uh, put into practice back in the UK? Well, it's not so much a putting back into practice, but it's, it's the knowledge of, for argument's sake, the mosquito control. That was a good learning curve for, for me there. And yes, as we... Although I haven't done any mosquito control back here since then, it, the knowledge is still the knowledge is still there. You know what to use, um, where to use it, what to look for. Um, so that 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 kind of bit was that that kind of bit. I have got the knowledge to do it. Should we start going down them down them lines? Um, I, I also did um, I also did a bash course. So it's a bird airstrike hazard course that was run up in York at the time. So when I was on leave once, I did a, a course up in York. And so the bird airstrike hazards, 
is also about trying to prevent populations of uh, birds growing near the airfield and what to do for argument's sake if there's a water course just out you're going to get a flock of birds um, going on to this piece of uh, land where the water is so what we're trying to do is some um, modifications to the land to stop the birds landing there because they're on the flight path the last thing you want is a flock of birds coming up in the air and landed against an aircraft so that was quite good again i've not used that here since but a great learning curve as well using them sort of techniques out out there neil i guess my final question would be then would you recommend it how much would you recommend this experience working overseas absolutely if, if, if you feel like it there is tons of work out there by the way there's lots of companies like kbr that's, that's empl that employed me it still does i still go out um auditing and training uh, abroad i mean it's not everybody's cup of tea working on a working in a conflict zone but there was lots of other people like me out there doing a job like i said the, the plumbing the hvac whatever so there's lots of people willing willing to do it and if you if you've got an inkling to do it i would try it just go and experience it it doesn't have to be a war zone there's plenty of jobs abroad there's plenty of jobs out there in australia the middle east there's absolutely loads you just need to go online, have a look. There's plenty out there. If you fancied it, do it. Because if you've got a bit of experience in pest control and you go abroad, do it a bit abroad, it'll just open your eyes up to another little lifestyle. When you come back to the UK, who's not going to employ an experienced person? There's tons of companies out there looking for experienced guys. So nobody's going to say no. If you, if you go away for a year abroad to try it abroad, see what it's like, and then come back, Guaranteed, you'll get a job. If you're experienced, you'll, you'll be fine. So, yes, I'd, I'd encourage people to try it. Great. Neil, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and your knowledge and such an eye-opening topic. I really appreciate it, and I hope the pest controllers have got a lot out of this. Thank you very much. Thanks once again to Neil Wotherspoon, then, of Elite Pest Management. If you're feeling inspired to find out a little bit more about Neil's work in Afghanistan, like so you can follow him on LinkedIn or like you mentioned in the podcast, go to his Facebook page and try and hunt out this photo album of all the critters he came across on his important work out there. Next up on the podcast, we're going to be joined by Gary Nicholas, the Digital Pest Management Manager for Bayer UK, and he's basically the perfect person to talk about our chosen subject of digital pest control. So that should be an interesting look in where technology fits into the future of pest control. Just before we go then, here's the code for this week's episode. Papa, Oscar, Romeo, Charlie. Uniform, Papa, India, November, Echo. Thanks for joining us once again and we'll be back next time. Bye bye.